We're going to be in Exodus 20, uh, chapter, chapter 20, verses 1 through 6 today. We're going to tiptoe our way into the Ten Commandments and see how great a God we have. Let's pray. Father, thank you for a few moments tonight to sneak away from our homes, our jobs, uh, kind of the everyday life and grind here under the sun. And we can come here, gather, sing three tremendous songs of truth. Uh, this evening, and now open our Bibles and feed our souls. Our souls need this, Lord. We need to hear the Word of God tonight and be encouraged and strengthened. And so we pray that the truth of our Heavenly Father, how He is revealed in the book of Exodus, would strengthen us and remind us that our God has set up a plan. He has made a way to come to Him. And Lord, may we use that come and hear his word and listen to him and speak with him lord thank you for this time together in jesus name amen well a few weeks ago we had a we had a panel and then last week we were off because of vbs so it's been a little while since i was in this text but i just want to drop back into exodus 19 just a little bit back to verse 16 and kind of pick up the context so you remember what's going on. I, I'm always studying these passages, so I remind myself that you don't always, uh, can't always remember exactly what happened. Uh, uh, they have now moved um, from Remedim, and they've moved over now to Sinai. There's probably within a day's walk. That's probably where they're getting water from at this point. And they've now come to the base of Mount Sinai. And God shows up, and you'll look, pick it up in verse 16 of chapter 19. And so it came about on the third day when it was morning that there was thunder and lightning and flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain and a very loud trumpet sound so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. And they stood at the foot of the mountain. What an amazing uh, scene. Can you see the imagery there? Millions of people gathering at the foot of this mountain. Lightning's gone. The world is shaking. God is coming down. Notice in verse 18, the Mount Sinai. Now Mount Sinai was all in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. And its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace. and And the whole mountain quaked violently. And when the trumpet, the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. Isn't that interesting? Someday we'll hear the trumpet of God again as he comes to gather his people. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai on the top of the mountain. The Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain. Moses went up and then the Lord spoke to Moses, go back down, (laughs) warn the people. Do not let them break through to the Lord to gaze Many will perish. And also the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves and, or else the Lord will break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come up the mountain for you warmed us already. Remember, you already told them that. We set boundaries of the mountain to consecrate it. And then the Lord said, go down and come up again. Remember I told you, I think he, he went up 20 some odd times. We follow that. You, somebody got to count those and tell me what it is. I can't remember what it is. He goes up and down a mountain a lot. Um, and come up again, and you and Aaron, but do not bring the priests um, and the people, and the people break through to come to the Lord, or he will break forth upon them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. And so you can see the scene, these millions of 
refugees in a sense, right? They don't have a whole lot. Whatever they could carry coming out of Egypt, they have. They're living in tents and they are in the desert and they're camping. God is feeding them. He's bringing manna every morning for them, six days out of the week. And he's providing water from the rock. And, and here they're totally dependent upon him. And up to this point in the narrative, God has been speaking to Moses and Moses has been communicating that. Now, the narrative here takes a, a little hiatus for just a second. When you pick up chapter 20, and, and if you look down, it'll go through the t- what we call, of course, the Ten Commandments. And then the narrative picks up in verse 18. I want you to pick it up there just for a moment. It's going to stop. These are the, this is the great Ten Commandments. The heart of the law of God is going to be given. But the narrative's still going along. And I want you to pick this up in verse 18. All the people perceive the thunder and the lightning flashing and the sounds of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, and when the people saw it, they trembled and stood at a distance. Yeah, we're not going across that fence. Then they said to Moses, speak to us yourself, and we will listen, but let not God speak to us, or we will die. And Moses said to the people, do not be afraid, for God has come in order to test you, and in order that that the fear of him may remain with you, so that you may not sin. So that's the whole narrative, but within this, Moses is going up and down the mountain, and there he's receiving what we traditionally call the Ten Commandments, the heart of the law. Now, um, the, this is marked in several places in scriptures, this event. This, this is such a, an earth-trembling event. I, I, it's marked in several places. Let me just read some of them. In Deuteronomy chapter 5, as Moses is recording more of the law and the history of the nation, he says this, These words the Lord spoke to all of your assembly, this is Deuteronomy 5, 22 and 23, at the mountain from the midst of the fire of the cloud and the thick gloom with great voice, and he added no more. He wrote them on the tablets of the, of the stone and gave them to me. And when you heard the voice from amidst the darkness, while the mountain was burning with fire, you came near to me, all the heads of the tribes and elders. The point is, is he reminds us of this. And he reminds us that they, they did not forget this event. It goes all the way to the book of Galatians. Now there's angels involved in all this that's happening, but we don't see that in this particular text. Galatians chapter three, verse 19, Paul says this. He says, why the law then? It was added because of transgressions. And then this little ditty that's thrown in there. Having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed would come. So there's angels involved in this, this whole amazing event that goes on, Hebrews chapter two, two. For if the word spoken through angels provided unalterable, and every transgression and disobedient received a just penalty. And so um, this, these incredible beings that God made were st- certainly involved at this time when the earth was shaking as well. And then Hebrews chapter 12, verse 21 Speaking of this whole time frame in this time, it says, so it was so terrible, that, uh, so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I am full of fear and trembling. He seems calm and collected with the people, but he is in front of the living God. The mountain is erupting. It's on fire. God's coming down. I mean, uh, it's, it's quite a scene. And yet all of this, I want you to think about this today, all of this is designed by God so that he can have fellowship with his people. It's a unique way, we're gonna try to figure that out, why he comes in such glory and splendor 
in order to have fellowship with his people. We have to work on that tonight to see if we can understand that. Now, the theophany that we see, just as we read at the end of 19, this is God coming and taking on a form. He's in the clouds, he's in the fire. Um, that's described here in 19 was not the ultimate revelation. I want you to understand that. That's not the whole thing that's going on here, although that, that catches your attention, right? That's the trailer for the movie. <laughs> but there's something bigger. There's something bigger he's here to do, what God is down on earth to do. And though he clearly is revealing his power and majesty and holiness, God had come to do something even greater. And that's to communicate his word. It's greater than his display that he put on. He's come down to communicate his word so they know how to conduct themselves and come into his presence. They would, not, they would not know how to fellowship. You can see them. They're scared. We don't want to talk to them. You talk to them, Moses. Then tell us what to do. They don't know how to approach this holy God. And so God is coming down, going to give the hearts of the law to them. Not all of the law they're going to hear right away. It'll be over these 40 days that God reveals the entire law. But he wants them to have the heart of the law so they know how to come to him. I want you to get that, not miss that tonight. Now listen, God did not leave them on their own initiative. He didn't say, look, I want you to just figure out how to act and, and how to please me. Remember, you got a holy God, meaning he's absent of evil and absent of sin. He's perfect in all his ways. And then you have us. <laughs> what a contrast, right? Um, and, and Israel's sins and rejection of God and their, their whining and complaining we've already seen, that's all written on the page of scriptures. And now, how is God, this holy God, gonna meet with these people? And that's a good question for us ourselves. He's gonna give them his word. He's gonna give them the word of God so that they can assemble with him. The Ten Commandments are, again, the, the heart of the Mosaic Covenant. And then we look at them, there's so much more. There was many, many more laws and ceremonies and all that was to come and be given Moses as we, as we play out the rest of Exodus. But this is the heart of it. And in, in order to understand their function, we must set in our minds how they are found. How do, how do we come upon these and how do we deal with the commandments? And I, I want you to remember, the commandments were not given to Moses. I said this a couple weeks ago. The commandments were not given to Moses to take those commandments into Egypt in order that those commandments would free them. That's not what he did. He went in, took Moses in before the commandments, pulled his people out, gave them physical salvation. It's a picture of certainly spiritual salvation as well. Went in, brought them out, brought them to himself, and then gave, him, gave them the Ten Commandments. And it's important to understand that. The commandments are given to Israel for guidance of how to come conduct themselves, how to continue in this, this freedom they now have. Remember, they were slaves. They were completely ruined. They cried out to God, and God brings them out. Now they're, they're free. So how are they going to enjoy that freedom? That freedom? You leave man to himself with no instruction of what God says. He will destroy himself. And so God is going to allow them to know him and how to come to him so that they can enjoy this freedom he did for them. This is such an important truth of the Ten Commandments. 
And so often we kind of just go, well, I can't remember what the third one is, or fourth. Whoa, there's so much better than that. So that we live lives that are pleasing to the Lord and have the joy of the freedom we live. Look, sin will always cause you to fall into slavery. You and, I will, you and I will fall into slavery some days because we just want to sin. We, wanna, we don't want to accept what God's doing and we'll find ourselves just in bondage in a way, won't we? Now, certainly, if we're truly saved, we don't lose our salvation without teaching of that, but we feel lost, right? We don't have our joy. We don't have any of those things. Well, God is teaching his children how to come to him and enjoy the freedom. Enjoy the freedom. And that's one of the great reasons for the Ten Commandments. Now, commandments are given for this guidance for freedom. And remember, in chapter 19, verse 6, if you just put your finger there, he calls the nation a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Kingdom of priests and a holy nation. He's already seen with just a drop of hat how they act. I've split seas, drowned their enemies from them. Three days later, you've brought us out here to die, Right? I mean, they just, he knows how quickly they are, will turn their back on God. He knows us. He knows our sinful nature, doesn't he? And so here he calls them a, king, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And what the Ten Commandments do is help them act like it. <laughs> act like you are my people. Like you want to have a relationship with me. And so he gives these great commandments to help guide the nation in the way they conduct themselves. One of the reoccurring sinful tendencies found throughout scriptures and even today is that obedience of the law becomes the basis of salvation. Rather, rather than the thanksgiving that God set us free. And man, to this day, Christians will talk to me over and over and they'll, they'll fall back about how they feel guilty they didn't do this and guilty they didn't do that and so forth. And certainly, if they're in sin, they need to repent of that and turn. But often, we try to take some commands that God has given us and try to present ourselves before God for salvation through the things that we do. That's not what the commandments were given for. That's not, and the Bible's full of commandments. I, I was reading recently an article, and somebody had charted something like 1,100 direct commands in the New Testament for believers. God is constantly telling us how we can come to him and enjoy our salvation to the fullest. That's why he tells husbands, love your wife. You know why? Because your salvation is so much more joyful. Wives, submit to your husbands as this beautiful act of worship to God. Your salvation will be much more joyful. Children, obey your parents because your salvation will be so much more joyful. Does that make sense? So we come to the Ten Commandments coming that direction and looking at them that way. Now, you know the scene here. The Israelites have been fenced off from the bottom of the mountain. But the commandments, in a sense, are kind of fencing Israel in. Not letting them move out to their sinful tendencies. He's, he's going to fence them in and bring them to this continual fellowship with God. Remember, he's bringing a sinful people into his presence. So he's bringing them in a way where he can have fellowship with them. So many people look at the Bible and say, oh, it's a list of rules. The problem is they don't love God. When you love God, you look at that and go, oh, God, I want to please you with my marriage, my parenting, my job, my way I handle my finances, and I mean, just so and so forth. 
Because, because the joy of your salvation is, is now reflecting in daily life. And I think he's doing the same thing here. Now the commandments are danger signs as well, right? They're warning of behavior that displeases God. Thou shalt not murder. That doesn't please God at all. <laughs> Take a man and another man's wife. Doesn't please God at all. So there, there's some warning signs here of, uh, and warning of behavior that displeases God and undermines the fellowship. So we still, as New Testament, New Covenant Christians, we look at these and say, oh God, I want to have a fellowship with you. We'll say things like this. We don't, we, Bible clearly teaches we do not lose our salvation because we can't lose what we did not gain on our own, right? So he, he gifted the elect with salvation. He gifts us and gives us salvation. But what we do lose, as David said so well, the joy of our salvation. So we lose that fellowship with the Lord, that sweet communion that gives you joy and contentment in life. And so these commandments teach us that God warns of these things. Hey, don't go into that. That is going to rob you of your joy. It's actually gonna change your view of me if you stay in that sin very long. So see what I mean? The commandments are kind of fencing you in towards a life that's pleasing to God versus letting you go to your own, your own flesh. That will, Listen, do you know your flesh? I mean, not ahead, somebody out there. And you know where it'll lead you, won't it? It'll lead you away from God. So God has given his children the word of God to move us to him so we can live a life that's pleasing to him. Now, the commandments were really a protection for the nation of Israel. They kept them and enjoined them versus being punished by God. And this will keep you in this relationship with me. If you don't do it, we'll see in the, in the very first commandments that there's punishment coming down generational when you reject God. Now, the essence of the law is love, right? How do we know that? Because Jesus said it, right? He said, what is there, men challenging him in the temple just, be, just the week of Passion Week comes and challenges him, this religious leader, you know, what's the greatest law? You know, and, and Jesus Christ asks the question, and he refers back to it, and he says, well, the greatest commandment is love the Lord of God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. So that, that's the heart of the law. It is really love. And when we come to commandments, whether Old Testament or New Testament, whether fulfilled in Christ or fulfilled in our relationship with Jesus Christ as believers, ultimately these commandments are rooted in the love of God. But how many people in the world that you run into don't, don't realize that? They look at Christianity as a list of rules because their eyes haven't been opened to the glory of God. And I, and I wrote this in my note. I said, Lord, what great protection and joy that is found in coming to God his way. Now, I'm not talking just about salvation. Certainly, we can't even come to God our own way anyway. But we find great joy of coming to God his way. You say, well, what do you mean by that, Scott? Well, he says, pray and talk to me. Stop trying to live your life on your own. Stop trying to make all these decisions and go through these difficult times that America's going through, trying to go through this and never beseech me. See, I find great protection in this because what you do is you end up bending your knee to God and you say God I cannot do this on my own and you find joy and satisfaction now too many people see the commandments only as negative right they see them in negative terms thou shalt not thou shalt not and that's because they haven't come to grips with man's struggle right 
So somebody who will come and say to you, well, there's all these commandments, you shall not do this, you shouldn't do this, you shouldn't do that. And, and the reason is, is they don't see the power of the flesh. They don't see. Now we look at it and we go, you're right, God. I, I, I know that. I crossed that line one time. I know that's a good negative for my life. And you go, well, maybe that's just the Old Testament. Well, it's not. You know the great passage on love in 1 Corinthians 13? You know that passage, right? Listen to the negatives that are in this. 1 Corinthians 13, five through six. Love is not jealous. It's all full of knots. Which we would, in the Greek, we would say that's a neg- it's a negative. Not like a negative maybe you think in the English, but I mean, it's this negative. This is, love is not this. Why? Why do we have to say it's not jealous? Because of sinful man, right? He's jealous and he ruins his marriage. So real love is not jealous. It's not bragging. It's not arrogant. It's not unbecoming. It doesn't seek its own. It's not provoked. It does not take an account of wrong suffered. It does not rejoice in unrighteousness and so forth. You see how the Bible knows who we are. God knows our tendencies. So he writes in a way to us to help us fence us in. No, Scott, that bragging or arrogance, that's not real love. You're outside of where I want you to be. Does that make sense? So the Bible writes that way. And Christians, we look at that and we go, oh yeah, he's right. That isn't love. I need to learn how to love God's way. I need to learn to come his way. Now, as we start to look at this um, great covenant that God is bringing to his people it's interesting that we see this done in the world in, in a way when we study the great kings they all make covenants with their people right uh, I read this week of the archaeological findings that uncovered treaties between kings and their people and I read one on the Hittites of course Hittites are one of the group that's going to be in the land that they're going to have to drive out of the land but this particular reading it was very interesting the first section that they, they found this preamble right they found what the king would say to his subjects to his people well just like this the first section was called a preamble and it contained a self-identification of the ruler. It would say something like this. Thus says so-and-so, the great king, the king of the land of the Hittites, in the son of such-and-such. And I wrote that because I couldn't pronounce a name. <laughs> now we're going to see that. We're going to see that in, in this one in a minute in chapter 20. And then from there, they usually add other titles and attributes. The great ruler, you know, the... The mighty man, you know, whatever, they'll, they'll add those things. And then the second section, it deals with a positive relationship that exists between the king and his people in the time of the treaty. The king welcomes his people. The, the king lives for their freedom or whatever. They'll, it always makes some kind of statement. And then the third section, usually the longest, this now contains the stipulation and the rules and the regulations for the people to come under submission to the king for him not to kill them. And that's, we see this all down through history, the way they do that. Now, when we get to this, there's one giant major difference in this um, between the rules set by these human kings and the ones given by God here. And, and even the, and you think about this, even the greatest human kings, they can prescribe rules that they themselves fail to keep, Right? We see that in our own country. We see our, our rulers and 
and politicians and all the stuff they do and all the stuff they do and then they, they press on the man and yet they themselves are found guilty, right? But not with a living God, not, not him. He's, he sets down rules of conduct that perfectly mirror his, his character. Remember we said this a couple weeks ago. The law is the mirror of the character of God. One of the ways we understand God and know God is we read his law because it reflects him perfectly. And so in, in theological terms, we would say it like this. It is, it is said that the commandments reflect the moral law which is based on the unchanging nature of God himself and how he desires his created world to operate. So God is setting down from his own person, from his own character, the way he desires in his perfection, in his righteousness, the way he desires the world to operate. Now, the church under the new covenant has even a greater privilege than Israel of old. Because we not only have the standard which God set in the law, we now have the perfect fulfillment of that standard in who? Jesus Christ. Go with me to Matthew chapter 5 real quick. Because we want to look at this. Because uh, this is not a message on keep the law and make God happy with you. (laughs) This is a message about God gave us the law so that we know how to come to him and find joy in our salvation and joy in our freedom. So Matthew chapter 5, he's already early in his ministry dealing with the legalist of the religious rulers of Israel. Matthew chapter 5 verse 17, he says, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish but to fulfill. So he's talking about a, a new way to come to him. I, in, in, in a sense, they're taking it that way. But he says, no, I, I've not come to abolish your law. They're thinking you're getting rid of our whole religious system. No, he's come to fulfill what they can't. They sit there and tell the people, oh, you don't do this, or that lamb's not good enough. And they, they keep their thumbs on the people, and he says, look, I'm not come to abolish your law. I'm the only one who can fulfill it. And so he sets that forth in verse 17. Then verse 18, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until it is all accomplished. Well, who did that? Christ did Every iota of the law was accomplished in Christ. So for new covenant believers, don't get lost. And I'm teaching out of the Old Testament. I'm teaching the Ten Commandments as though that's the way we come to God. Please do not take that. I'll say that over and over. We merely come to this law of God to see his character and who he is and how to approach him and, and enjoy our freedom in him. Because look, he alone does it. Look, when you stand before the Father someday... You will stand as one who fulfilled the law of God through Jesus Christ. Isn't that incredible? Someday we'll walk into his presence and we will come in there, maybe even introduced. Here is so-and-so, one who fulfilled your law through Jesus Christ. He can be in your presence. He now reflects your character perfectly. That's an amazing thought, isn't it? Look at verse 19. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments... And teaches others to do the same shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them shall be called the great, shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So we Jesus is saying, look, these things are not, not going to just disappear. 
They're part of how we come to God, how we understand who he is, how we enjoy our freedom, our salvation. Look at verse 20. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of God. Can you imagine those guys standing right there when he says this? Look, you've got to be better than those guys. They think they're perfect. Oh, I've done all these things for my youth. And that ain't good enough. And so the law has always been misused. It's still misused today. Our friends that are caught in the Sabbatarian world and some of those things that, you know, that try and try to mix Christ and the law and try to, you know, and it's just, they're not the happiest people in the world if you've ever spent time around them. Because they're stuck. They're trying to mingle the finished work of Christ with their own finished work, in a sense. And it's always pushing against each other. Now, one of the things that's beautiful when we think about the law and Jesus finishing it, First Peter chapter 2 says, he committed no sins, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. So he, he completes the law and never sins. So he can be our substitution for us. He can hung on the cross and God can look at him and say, I'll, I'll take that for Scott, for you. Now, let me give you just four things real quick and then we'll get to our first point. That's all introduction. You just can't, I mean, I got looking at this. I go, Lord, we're gonna get through a, a commandment, maybe two tonight. Um, it just starts to open up with the greatness of God when you start studying this stuff, right? So, so here's four things about the Ten Commandments, about the law that I think will be helpful to you. First and foremost, we look at the Ten Commandments as a reflection of God's perfect character. First of all, we look at the Ten Commandments as a reflection of God's perfect character. It isn't hard to look at this. And we'll look at them one by one and see this. Second, we see the law being fulfilled by Jesus Christ on our behalf. Now make sure you, you get that in there. We see the law being completed, fulfilled, God completely satisfied with the Lord fulfilling it on our behalf. So, so that removes Scott from having any part of the fulfillment of the law. I just received the benefit of it. Okay, got that? Third thought here on the law. We see the Ten Commandments, the law, given to man so he can enjoy, here's what, here's what we have to enjoy, the presence and fellowship of God. We can enjoy it. Not gain it, because salvation brings the presence of God through the Holy Spirit, right? through the finished work of Jesus Christ. But I can enjoy the presence of God and I can enjoy my salvation, right? Such, a, such an important fellowship with God. Um, we'll say this, and I've said this already tonight, but you'll say, I know I've fallen out of fellowship with the Lord. I didn't lose my salvation, but I've fallen out of step with him, right? Because I chose to live outside the parameters that he was guiding me to joy. So, so I think that's a very important point there. The law was given so we can enjoy the presence and the fellowship of God. Fourth, we see the Ten Commandments or the law revealed in the New Covenant and obeyed from those who love their Savior. So every one of the commands, I'm going to take you to the New Testament and show you the fulfillment of that in the New Covenant. So let me say that again because I know some of you write this down. We see the Ten Commandments, the law revealed in the New Covenant and it's obeyed by those who love their Savior. So, though we, <laughs> we'll say terms like, man, I'm gonna kill that guy when he shows up. We're not gonna kill that guy, because <laughs> we love the Lord. 
And we probably should go, you know, I probably shouldn't say that. <laughs> you know? We, 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 we keep our eyes forward. We, we keep eye on coveting and things out of our heart that want things because our Savior died for that sin. One of the great ways to help us when we're repenting and confessing sin is to remind ourselves or tell the Lord, and I do this often, Lord, I need your forgiveness because that's what put you on the cross. Will you forgive me for that and name that sin? See, it's, it is a great motivator as we obey the Savior. All right. One of three thoughts. We'll see how far we can get. The voice of God in his credentials. The voice of God in his credentials. Look at chapter, ooh, gotta get back to Exodus 20, verse one. Then God spoke all these words saying, we'll just stop right there. So now the living God, who up to this point has spoken through Moses, now begins to display his presence and his, his voice to the nations. And we saw in verse 18 and 20, they're going, no, 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 we don't want to talk to him. You talk to him and tell us what he said. They're, he's now speaking, and they're realizing, oh, this was not some figment of Moses' imagination. And they're connecting, think about this, they're connecting everything he did in Egypt you know, see, you know, water turned to blood and frogs and flies and, and boils and hail and death of the firstborn. He, they're connecting. Oh, whoa, this is the same God. We've seen this. Oh, that's right. He split a sea and drowned our enemies. Oh, he feeds us every night, every morning, bread of heaven. Oh, that's right. He gives us water out of rocks. So here, now, they're in his presence. This one that has done this magnificent work that they've not seen before, now they're hearing his voice. And what he's going to say to them is this is the way I want you to come to me. Now, as God speaks what is known formally as what we call the Ten Commandments, the heart of the law, he deals directly with his people through Moses. So Moses is the intercessor. Now remember, we, we long time ago when we were starting the study, Moses is a type, right? He's a type of Christ. He's not Christ. He was a sinner. He needed Christ's blood to wash back on him. But he's a type so Moses is this great interceder. He goes between God and the people, right? So he's a, he's a type there. Now, the Ten Commandments, when it, when it talks about this term, uh, then it says, then God spoke all these words, or, or just the phrase Ten Commandments. There are two different words um, in this text. In fact, the term Ten Commandments is only used three times in the Bible, but it's referred to over and over and over in numerous ways. But just the Hebrew term, and it's used in uh, Hebrew literature and so forth, means ten words. That's what it means. So God gives ten words. Now they're in sentence form and, and have great instruction with them, but he gives ten words. When you get into the Greek, it's called the Decalogue, and this Greek term is synonymous with the Ten Commandments and literally means ten words as well. So words here is, is verse one, all these things that he says here, then God spoke all these words and he's referring now to the 10 commandments. So he's referring probably to verses three through 17. Look at verse two with me. Now we get into the preamble. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. So this preamble and this, this is a, a preamble and a historical uh, prologue to who he is. Notice the phrase, I am Yahweh, your God. Now, this is an amazing point. This is the one that they've heard of, right? This is what, what the term was used all through the plagues in Egypt. 
Yahweh is going to do this. Let my people go, or Yahweh will do this. They've heard this. And so he says, look, this isn't just any God that you've seen, all these gods of these pagan nations that you've been involved with. I am Yahweh. It's quite a statement that he makes here. And, and it reflects this magnificent person that, that is giving the Mosaic law. It's a reminder of what he did. And then notice he says in this preamble here, he says, who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery? Well, this is just a condensed summary of God's mighty acts here. Now, think about that. I, I heard your cries when you cried out to me. I gathered my man Moses who had run from Egypt and was out hiding in the wilderness. I endowed him and strengthened him and sent him back as you cried out. I gave him through him. I spoke my word and I brought my rain down on the nation of Egypt. And I beat every one of their gods. I beat their Pharaoh. I destroyed your enemies. When he says this, they think of all the things that go through their mind. I'm the one who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. I have given you freedom. That's who's speaking to you. See, this is an in-depth statement. It's an in-depth prologue as he's getting ready to give these commandments to him. Now, God will use this phrase over and over in the scriptures. I promise you, if you read through the Bible, you will see it over and over. He'll say, I'm the God that brought you out of Egypt. I'm the God that brought you over Egypt. I'm the God that brought you out of Egypt. He says this over and over and over. He does not want them to forget this. So he uses this phrase so many times. So now the Ten Commandments flow naturally from what God has said out of verse two. I'm God, I'm Yahweh, I'm the one who rescues, I'm the one who makes slaves free, this is me. So in other words, on the basis of who I am and on the basis of what I've done for you, hear now what I must do to remain in close fellowship with you. What I am gonna provide for you so you can stay in close fellowship with me. I'm gonna set you and fence you in so you can say, you can say that I am your God. Second thought, first command to fellowship. Now I think the first four commands are really uh, set on revealing the character of God. Um, and they expose how you can have this relationship with him. Notice he says that you shall have no other gods before me. Well, this is a great command, isn't it? You shall have no other gods before me. We, we believe this as Christians, don't we? As Christians, you forsake all other things, right? The God of money, the God of life, all the things that you thought that could get you to some kind of heaven on earth or whatever else you thought, when you become a Christian, you say, Jesus Christ is the only way to the Father. He is the only one I worship. That's, that's what this first command is talking about. And we believe this. But for Israel, the command was to prohibit idolatry. Uh, not, only, not only then, right there, but throughout the Old Testament, this command was get rid of idols out of your life. Right? And you'll see that more as it goes on. So, one of the problems is what's hard when you read this, you go, well, that's what they're going to do. That's exactly what they're going to do. Right before Moses' death, Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 36, just jot this down because take a time, let me read it. Moses says this to the people of Israel. This is right before they're going into the land. He's going to die, and then Joshua's going to lead them in, and they're going to wipe out Jericho and so forth like that. Right before he dies, he says, the Lord will bring you and your king whom you set over you. Well, who's he talking about? He's talking about Saul. You're going to set up your own king. I need, remember when that all happens and Samuel says, you don't need a king. God is your king. Nope, we want a king like everybody else. 
that is going to lead to destruction of the nation, right? And he says, to a nation which will neither, neither you nor your fathers have known, and there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone. Now, they're, they're been fed every, every morning. I mean, they've gone through the wilderness 40 years. He's, he's not let their shoes wear out, their clothing wear out. He's met their needs all the way through. They're on the doorstep of the promised land. And Moses says, you're going to forsake him, and you're going to fall down between, between, before graven images. It's astounding. And, and, and the word before means it carries the idea, it's, it's an interesting word in the, in the English, but the, the Hebrew is, is so much stronger, of course. It has a hostile. He says, you shall not have any other gods against me, in a sense. Or, or in addition to me, or opposing me, is the idea. Uh, it's used, the same word's used in, in Genesis sixteen twelve, where God is talking about who Ishmael's gonna be. And it says, Ishmael will oppose everyone. So it's the same word. So he says, don't have these opposing gods against me. They're against me. And then this word before also, uh, there's an idea of his presence. And I, as I thought about that, as I was writing the sermon, I thought, Lord, you watch and you see everything we do. And when we bow down to the almighty dollar or to some kind of pleasure that we seek greater than seeking God or whatever it may be, you watch all of that. And God says, don't bring that into my presence. That you won't find joy. You won't have what I've intended for you when you have idolistic things in your life. Now remember, other nations were polytheistic, meaning they had many gods, large numbers of gods, which they thought had powers of, that were greater than man and, and could control their destinies. And when we study the Philistines, right, they have Dagon and some of those. And they, they go to those and they're trying to say, well, will we win this war? You, do you hold our destiny and so forth, right? They all believed in that. And furthermore, the kings that were of the pagan nations, they demanded that they themselves have no rivals to their own throne. So here's the God, the King of Kings, the, the throne of thrones saying, do not rival me in any way. You will not have joy. You will not find my will. You will not have the pleasures in the promised land that I have for you if you rival me. I've done all this for you. It's such a great reminder, and I love bringing the practical in this because we hear the saved people in this room. If you know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, he saved you from the flames of hell, eternal damnation. He's taken your sins away. He looks at you perfectly righteous. You stand justified, declared righteous for all of eternity. You have heaven waiting for you. You have a place prepared for you. All is forgiven. He now has us living as a lighthouse for him on this world till he comes back and gets us. And yet we mess around with idols. We mess around with things that rob us of our joy. So, so there's, there's great application for us New Testament Christians here. Now, how extensive is this thought, don't bring these into my presence? I got thinking about this just a little bit. So here you have the King Yahweh, right? He is not merely coming to them in a temple or a promised land. He is encompassing everywhere, right? 
Jesus makes statements like, where I am, you will be also. Um, he, he, he shares that deity and essence with God. But then God says this in Isaiah 66, 1. Now think about this. When it talks about don't bring anything, don't rival me in any way, he's, thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. Where then is a house you could build for me? Where is a place that I may rest? And what does the nation do? They build this temple. They start to idolize this temple. By the time you get to Jesus' day, the temple is all they want to talk about. And of course, Jesus says, I'm going to tear this down and rebuild it in three days. They go ballistic. And, and remember, he, you know, the, the, remember, we just said this in Mark. The disciples come out of the temple and they go, oh, Jesus, isn't this beautiful? Isn't this beautiful? He goes, that's all going away. The church is not going to worship buildings. We're going to worship the Savior. And so you can just see that that can happen. And, and so he says, what, what, are you going to build a building for me? The earth's my footstool. Does that show the massiveness of God? I mean, I could see that in my mind. You know, I'm this, you know, enough word picture there to go, the earth is just his footstool. He spreads his arms out through the, the, the vast <laughs> darkness of eternity. He's got his feet on the earth. So, so you're going to bring some kind of God into my presence, into my relationship? He's reminding them how foolish this is. When Moses was, in a sense, arguing with God about the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, he says this, far be it in chapter 18, verse 25, far, far be it from you to do such a thing to slay the righteous with the wicked so that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike. And then he says this, far be it from you shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly. See, the Bible is speaking of the magnitude of God, how great he is. He can judge the entire world. He has it all under his control. Don't bring that stuff into my relationship. Do not have some other God in front of us. Now, it's important to know, in, in, in knowing languages is really important. That's why we teach our guys languages at, at the seminary. But all of these commands are given in a second person singular pronoun. Look at, look at verse three. You shall not, you shall have no other gods before me. And, and you go, well, what, why is that important? Because I, I think sometimes we look at these commands and we think nationalistically, don't we? We think about the nation of Israel. But the commands are not given that way. They're given individually. And there's a required response to the personal command given. Look, this is loyalty to the king of kings personally, not just some national response to some new law some king laid down. This is the king of kings dealing with his subjects personally one after another. Do not have other gods in my presence. And by the way, I'm everywhere. <laughs> As I told you, the study of theology proper, the doctrine of God. And the more you study this, the more you love him, and the more you're awe of him, and the more you go, wow, God, I, on my own, there is no way I deserve to be in your presence. And you start sweeping out the house, don't you? You start going, is there gods that I'm trying to hold on to, that I, something that I white knuckle in this life? Health? Finances? What is it? What am I holding on? What am I bringing into this presence of this almighty God that makes the rocks tremble? And you begin to want to deal with this stuff, don't you? So these first four commands have to do with our relationship with God. How we come into his presence. From a New Testament perspective, these 
commands are taught throughout the New Testament, aren't they? Christ, who is God, is to be our all in all, Ephesians 1.23 says. He is our, he's to be our all in all. As a New Testament Christian, as a New Covenant Christian, Christ is everything to us. So we don't bring some other God before him, something else we would worship, right? There's no rival in the place of a Christian. Christ is everything to us. And so we're careful when we start to think about what are we trying to bring into this relationship. He is to be loved with all our heart, soul, and mind. The Holy Spirit is to be used to strive after that. You go, well, Scott, I, I can't love him with everything. I know you can't. I can't either. But by the power of spirit, he helps me. I think this is a life we live, right? Now we're, we continue to grow. You're here on a Wednesday night. You gave up a, an hour and a half to come in here and be and sing and, and fellowship and hear the word of God. And that helps you strive to love God. That helps you fight that battle, that, that flesh that's waging war against your soul, as Peter talks about in 1 Peter 2, 11. It's waging a war, so you come and you get fed because you want to love the Lord with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength, and you need the Spirit of God to help you walk day by day, step by step. But this first commandment is repeated in the New Testament. Listen to this, 1 Corinthians 8, 6. Yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him. You hear that? This is a great verse, 1 Corinthians 8, 6. We exist for him. And, for the, and, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. I mean, that's, that's restating the first command, isn't it? 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, for there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And yet, brothers and sisters, idols will sneak their way into our hearts. And so, what idol needs to be crushed tonight in your life? What idol and anxiety? Something that's sneaking in there and pushing around and wanting to have what only belongs to God. All of us struggle with this. This is why we confess and repent regularly and say, oh God, I want to enjoy my freedom, my salvation with you. Help me see these things. Help me see these things. Last thought, maybe. Number three, we might have to come back to this. But we'll start into it, just a hair. The uh, second commandment for fellowship. Four, four through six. Look at verse four with me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on earth beneath, or in the water under the earth. Well, the term idol is just a general term here in the Hebrew, but it refers to a carved image of wood or chiseled out of stone. Um, it often, in, in Old Testament times, represented a, a deity of a pagan religion. And the first one we see, guess what the first one we see and where we see it? Anybody know? Golden calf. With, right after this is done, right? He doesn't even get off the mountain. He's 40 days up there, flame, fire, smoke. They're going, well, he's, he's hosed. And so what do they come up with? An Egyptian bull calf, right out of Egypt. And that, of course, Aaron says, well, it just came out of the fire. <laughs> it might have. Satan was totally behind that thing. There's great papers written on whether they form themselves or they just submit it to the satanic movement of God, uh, satanic movement of Satan in that 
but, but they're just these pagan things, right? And so in some way, the essence of deity, when they look at this, they could localize their God, they could concentrate, the, concentrate this idol into this image, and he was accessible, and I could take him from here to there, and I could control this God, and I could move him around with me because I got him, and he'll fit in my saddlebag. Rachel had it underneath her saddle, right? Remember that? So that's the way they want their gods. They want them movable and, and doing what they want. Sound familiar? I mean, it's not hard to make the jump today. I want my God. I want my freedom. I want to, I want to change history. I want to live the way I want to live. I want to do this. I want to do that. I want to on and on and on and on. I want a movable God that works for me. God says, don't even have those things close to me. I don't think that the idols in view here of the pagans, God is really what the first commandment is talking about, though. And this is where I want to, want to hit this, and then we'll close with just this. God doesn't want any created thing to represent him, is what he's talking about here. It's easy to kind of get into idolistic thing and, and realize what they did. They had those things. They, they were movable. It worked for them. They made their religions around it. But I don't think that's what this commandment's about at all. I think the commandment is clear that there is nothing in God's created world that you could ever design to represent him. And the silliness of carving out a little Buddha with a fat belly and fall down before it is crazy. Or a bale that had a hole in it that they'd heat up and throw newborns into. What kind of God is that? And how far does depravity take man to that? But we do it, Right? Millions of babies aborted every year in our country. It's crazy around the world. It, it, that's its own idol, right? But, that, but listen, this is, not, this is not about that. He says, look, don't try to in any way make me out to be like something that you see in nature. So the commandment doesn't, listen, the commandment doesn't prohibit art in general I, I've run into people say well you know we shouldn't have you know cowboy imagery you know riding a horse and you know I don't know if you've ever seen some of the great artwork in the western artwork we shouldn't have that in our homes I don't think that's what it's saying at all what it's saying is don't try to define God by some structure don't, don't try to say oh this golden bull calf is God and he brought us out of Egypt it's a lie from the pit of hell and by denying the spiritual nature of God, the idol degrades God and misleads the worshiper of the true nature of the almighty God and makes God an ordinary experience. That's what they're doing. That's why he says don't mess with this. I know people get kind of crazy and they go, you, know, you shouldn't have any pictures of Jesus and all that. I, I, I'd be very careful going down that line. It's trying to somehow take this almighty spirit God who is, the Bible, 1 John chapter 4, verse 24 says he is spirit. No man has seen him and lived and trying to create some kind of image out of it. So he warns him against that. So God is defined by himself alone, not limited to man's perception. Don't try to perceive me as something. And this is, this is why God bans all use of construction of anything to his likeness. Isaiah 40, 18, and I'll end with this and then we'll come back and finish. This is, there's a lot in this command here I want to get to. But Isaiah 40, verse 18 says this, to whom then will you liken God? Question mark. Rhetorical. <laughs> it's such, uh, it's Isaiah 40 is, wow, what an amazing passage. We should all probably memorize it. To whom then will you liken God? 
well, I, I want to have a little idol that I can bow down for and help me remember God. Well, what are you going to make him look like? Where would you even start? <laughs> I mean, Isaiah's trying to get these people who are going to fall under the judgment of God who are, who are now a, just a short time away from God sending them off to to captivity, what are you doing? Then he goes on and says, or what likeness will you compare him with? Well, I think he looks like a bird. What? And he's just showing the, the foolishness of that. And, and so what we'll come back to, and I'll leave you with this thought because we're gonna get back into this next time, is that there's only one legitimate likeness of God and that's man made in his image. But then we have a problem because what? Man is what? Fallen. So where do we go for the likeness of God? Thank you, our Savior. He is the exact representation of the Almighty God, Hebrews chapter 1. He is God. And so we look to Him. And what do we worship? We worship Christ because He is the image of the Almighty. He is the explanation, John 1, 18 of our Heavenly Father. Father, thank you for this time. We just run out of time where we could talk all night about you. You are so glorious. You are so infinite. We are so finite. We come up against your character in the Ten Commandments and our knees buckle. And Lord, you got the mountain on fire and there's angels and there's clouds and smokes and we don't even care about that. All we can say is, who is this God? Who is he? That nothing can rival him. Nothing can replace him. And yet, he wants to have a relationship through, with us through Jesus Christ. What an astounding thing. So Lord, thank you for this study. Help us to love you more and more as we study and read and that we may know you so that we'll walk in a pleasing way, Lord. You tell us that over and over in the New Testament, to know you, to understand you, so we'll walk in a way that's pleasing. Lord, I think you're doing that at Sinai. So help us learn from the law of God fulfilled in Jesus Christ so we can enjoy our freedom, our salvation. In Jesus' name, amen.